The November 7th Idaho Falls City Club featured remarks by Idaho State University President Kevin Satterley for the forum titled Idaho State University, a Presidential Update. Audio of this program can be found at ifcityclub.com. Click on Events and Archives. Moderating for this forum is Idaho Falls City Club board member, Dr. David Adler. Welcome, everybody. Uh, greetings on a warm afternoon here in the fall. Uh, City Club brings you uh, terrific conversations, uh, issues of the day that are of importance here locally, nationally, and internationally. Sometimes people come here because it's well known as a one-hour respite from breaking news and the Twitter-in-chief. Uh, and so there are many reasons for coming here to City Club. As a, as a former longtime member, of the faculty at Idaho State University. It's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce our distinguished speaker today. Uh, president uh, Satterley is the 13th president at the history of Idaho State University. Uh, he is a son of Idaho, born in Priest River uh, to a family with deep roots in the logging industry and when I tell you that he chose to go on to become a lawyer and to leave the logging industry, I would not say he severed roots from the logging, because that'd be a very bad pun, so I wouldn't do that. After, after graduating from high school in Priest River, he went on to Boise State University and majored in that enviable field called political science. Uh, he, was, uh, he earned the distinction of being a top 10 scholar at Boise State while well, he earned that degree in political science and then went on to the University of Idaho uh, where he uh, earned his JD and began his practice of law. Early on in his career, he began uh, to work with the Idaho Attorney General's office where among his many duties, he was the chief legal counsel for the State Board of Education. Who knew that that role would make him particularly well suited to move in uh, to the position of becoming a president at a state university. When he left the Idaho Attorney General's office, uh, he began a distinguished career uh, at Boise State University where he spent some 20 years. He was, uh, among other things, the chief counsel and advisor to the president of Boise State University. He was the chief executive officer at the university. He was a vice president as well. Uh, and uh, as many of you know, uh, he carved out a, a great expertise uh, in the area of education law and the State Board of Education, all are agreed, made a very wise decision when it named Kevin Satterley the 13th president at Idaho State University. So Bengals, roar. Here is your president. Welcome. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for inviting me to be up here today. I appreciate it very much. I like coming up here to Idaho Falls. We have a fantastic facility. We have a fantastic group of students who are up here and faculty who teach our students. So it's always fun to come up here to Idaho Falls. I was here last week and being here again this week is a good thing. I can't tell you how grateful I am uh, to be president of Idaho State University because I've been here now about 16 months. And over the 16 months, I've learned a lot because that's one of the primary things I think as president I have to do is learn. Uh, 
And one of the things I've gained is a greater understanding of what it means to be a Bengal and what ISU means to all of our students, what it means to our community and all of our communities in our entire state. So I want to cover some of what we did last year in part of my speech today. But before I do and talk about what the last year has been like, I want to go back a little bit further in time with the story. So I'm going to start my story today in 1862. So in 1862, the United States is in the middle of the Civil War, literally right in the middle of the Civil War. In fact, some of you may recall from history some of the events that occurred in 1862, and it's in the backdrop of those events that this story occurs. So think about 1862. 1862 was the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee, with 20,000 casualties spread over two days of the conflict. 1862 was also the second Battle of Bull Run in Manassas. There were three days of bloodshed at that battle that cost 25,000 lives in total. And also the Battle of Antietam was in 1862. Antietam is the single bloodiest day in the history of this nation. And never before in battle, in any day before or since, including through all of the current wars, World War II, Antietam stands out as the single bloodiest day in the history of the United States. In fact, of all the men that walked into the battlefield that morning in 1862, one in four didn't make it out. So the Battle of Antietam, though, did something else. It, was, it had some results that provided a little hope for the Civil War because it was the first Union victory, true victory of the Civil War. It was the battle that saved Maryland from falling into the hands of the Confederacy. And it's the victory that served what Abraham Lincoln needed to issue the Emancipation Proclamation five days later. That was the victory that he needed to set a new hope for our nation. What could we be as a nation when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation? So think of 1862 as very bad times, very dark times in our nation. There was rationing of food and supplies for the war effort. Americans were dying by the thousands and tens of thousands. States were pitted against states, families against families, and as the saying goes regarding the Civil War, brothers against brothers. It was a time when literally half the Union was split against the other half, and within those halves, on each side, there were factions that supported the opposite side. So in short, it was a time of great strife, of great division, when our nation seemed so polarized, when they could no longer talk when they were so torn by their opposing views that not only could they not talk with each other in a civil way about these issues, but outright open rebellion and war over these issues of what was happening. So when we think about dark times in our history, at times when we have been polarized, when our government seems unable to resolve our problems, when our own people have gotten to the point that, about their principles that they can no longer speak with one another, we have to remember that the height of the Civil War, it was worse. And the reason I focus on 1862 is because in the middle of those incredibly bad times, what was the United States Congress doing at that time? So in the middle of 1862, in the middle of trying to pay for and wage war and keep the Union together, just hold the nation together, Congress was doing something else. And what they were doing is epitomized by a series of pieces of legislation, six in total, six pieces of legislation 
And this legislation affected monumental change in our society. Legislation that Congress put together in 1862, right in the middle of the war, and one of those pieces of legislation is the subject of this story. Because that one piece was called the Morrill Act, the full title of which is the Morrill Land Grant Colleges Act. It was named for its author, Vermont Congressman Justin Smith Morrill. This act said that in each new state admitted to the Union west of the Mississippi, when it entered the Union, land would be set aside in those states specifically to build a university, notably a public university. Not a private university, but a public university for the people. Further, additional land would be set aside and the money generated from the use of that land would be go to fund the operations of that university. So not only did Congress say there will be universities in every new state as it joins the Union, but there will be a funding mechanism to keep those universities operational. So why is this so remarkable? Well, for two reasons. First, specifically, this act was designed to create and fund higher education in states that didn't even exist, in states that were not even yet contemplated where the land hadn't even yet been surveyed, Congress was saying, in those states yet to come, higher education is critical to our future. And the second reason it's remarkable is again, think of the context of the times, the darkest, most divided times in this nation's history. And at that time that Congress is fighting a war just to hold the union together, and things aren't going well for the union, losing many battles, but at that same time, Congress is spending time planning and actively saying we do have a future as a nation. We are preparing for states that aren't even part of the Union yet. And Congress says that one of the most important things we have to prepare for in the higher education of those states yet to come is we need to provide for colleges and universities to educate people in those states that are yet to be. To me, that is Congress at its finest, providing hope during dark, dark times for the nation by saying that we will continue as a nation, we will continue to move forward, and when we do, and when we get there, the people will be educated. That's how important higher education is for the future of the nation. Now, speaking personally for a moment, regardless on whichever side of the political spectrum you find yourself, whatever side of the aisle, wherever you are, I know I wouldn't give for a Congress that during times of national strife and division, during time when our differences seem to be defining us, when our differences feel more pronounced than our commonality that brings us together, what I wouldn't give for a Congress that sets that type of hope for the future of our nation, hope in the form of higher education, hope in the form of a future education for our students. And that ultimately is what I'm here to talk about today, hope in the future of higher education right here at Idaho State University. So now, I'm gonna go forward in time to just one year ago. A year ago, I was fortunate, incredibly fortunate, 
to be named president of Idaho State University. And one of the first things I did is that I promised the entire university at all of our campuses, including here in Idaho Falls, that we are going to build a university built on the foundation of a great university that already existed and move forward around the core principles of trust, compassion, stability, and hope. Because there is abundant research that shows that every employee in every organization, every organization wants and needs trust, compassion, stability, and hope from their employer. That research shows that if you want an organization where your employees thrive, where innovation can flourish, where productivity, positivity, and job satisfaction all come together and intersect, you have to provide an environment based on those principles, trust, compassion, stability, and hope. So a year ago, we started addressing that at Idaho State University, a culture where hope is one of our core principles. And then we sent to work working on ideas where we can establish hope for the future of our university, to see our students flourish and thrive and work their way towards the better life that is the promise of higher education. That's why we're here. To me, it's that simple. So to accomplish that, we made some commitments last year, and we're starting to fulfill those commitments. One of the first things we did last year, and when you look at what a university is supposed to be, it may be the most uh, important accomplishment that we achieved last year, is that in December, I was honored to sit side by side with the co-chair of our faculty senate in front of the Idaho State Board of Education as our board of trustees and have approved a new faculty senate constitution one that the, the faculty and I worked on together, jointly, and then sat jointly and presented to the State Board of Education as our working document to talk about the future of a transparent, shared governance model to move our university forward. We promised we would do that, and in December we delivered. And we've made other promises along the way that we're delivering on as well. One of the iconic pieces that I promised was the eye on Red Hill. And the Iron Red Hill is back, and it's on the hill. It was funny because the morning that it was going up, and we've been working on it for months, and the structure was put in place, but the morning that the face started and the eye started to appear from the bottom towards the top on that hill, I dropped my daughter off at Century High School that morning, and then I had to drive to Boise for meetings. So I watched in the morning as those pieces were working their way up the hill, and then I drove to Boise. And by the time I got to Boise for my meetings, I was inundated with people who were so excited. They, they were watching the eye go up on our social media and how important that was. Because that's representing the history of our institution and how many people have been impacted by this institution over the last more than 100 years. And honoring that sense of tradition and that history is very important to our future. And this year, I also charged our marketing and communications staff with launching a statewide brand image campaign, one that projects Idaho State University into all corners of the state, talking about who we are and why we are here. And I have received so many comments from our Bengal community, from people who previously had no connection to Idaho State, uh, how positive they feel about the university and our faculty and our students because of what we're doing in that brand image campaign. And today, I want to show you the next piece. And some of you have seen this, seen this in our athletics teams and seen it on our banners and the things we were doing on campus. 
But as we have been an institution for 118 years, things evolved. Things evolved. We're not the same campus we were 118 years ago, and our brand and our image and our trademarks have to evolve as well. All of these pieces make up what we are as a university, why we are here, what we are trying to accomplish for our students and for our faculty to move human knowledge forward. And we've been making strides in that. And one of the other important factors that we have achieved over this last year is a commitment from the university that we are trying to reach out to our community, reach out to business and industry, reach out to people and understand what can the university do to help our community? How can we move our community forward? It was a very proud moment for me to sit side by side with the chairman of the Fort Hall Business Council and sign a memorandum of understanding outlining how we will work with the Shoshone-Bannock tribes to ensure that our programming is meeting the needs of the tribes, that we can work together to increase enrollment for tribal members at Idaho State. This MOU also provides how we will build programming that supports our Native American students and provides pathways for a better working relationship that benefits all of us. At Idaho State University, we have also decided it's time to reinvest in ourselves. We are announcing, uh, we did announce this last year, a renovation to Davis Field. Now, Davis Field, as we all know, was the original Spud Bowl. It was the site of the first ever live television broadcast of a college football game in the United States. The first ever live broadcast of a college football game was from the Spud Bowl, Davis Field in Pocatello, Idaho. We are showing that we are taking pride in that type of history by reinvesting in that facility and doing a remodel of that facility. And we are going to talk about what we're doing up here in Idaho Falls, but I'm foreshadowing that for a little later. And finally, we have started a new program where university leadership is reaching out to business and industry. I wanna hear from business and industry. I wanna know what employers want to see from our graduates. In order to make our graduates from Idaho State the most employable upon graduation, to be the most promotable, to move up throughout their careers. I want to know what employers need to see. In order to do that, we will be reaching out to employers across the state to see what their needs are to ensure that we have the right programming that makes our graduates the ones they want to hire. So we definitely are turning the corner and moving the institution forward. And this fall, we are starting our new visionary strategic planning effort to plan out the next 10 years of the future of Idaho State, to provide ISU a path forward, to refine who we are, to help build on our identity as an institution, to help find a path that lets us pursue mission fulfillment and, and have an impact on our region, our community, and our state. It will help us define that impact for our students, a plan that builds on our, nat our natural strengths and the process to find our future. And I am confident that we will set a path that makes Idaho State even better in the future. And a large part of that effort is going to focus on what are our plans here in Idaho Falls. So I wanna talk about four specific things related to our future planning that directly impact the Idaho Falls community and our students that are here. So first, first it's our relationship with the Idaho National Lab. The opening of the cyber core and the cyber computing facilities have the potential to be a watershed moment in the relationship between all of Idaho's higher education and the lab. 
When done right, this partnership will create the perfect circle of how higher education is supposed to interact with business and industry. Because spaces and laboratories in those facilities were specifically designed to facilitate collaborative research between INL employees and faculty and students from Idaho's universities. So when, when university faculty are out conducting research side by side with their lab counterparts, it will help the university create new knowledge in our society. Then those faculty come back to campus and they teach that knowledge to our students. And then those students graduate with that knowledge and become better prepared to work in our workforce. And then they go back and they work in those same employers where they studied as a student. And it creates the perfect circle of that cross between business and industry and what we do at the university. That is how we help students better their lives through education and help business and industry by the creation of new knowledge through research conducted at the university. That's the perfect circle of that connection. And enhancing and knowing that we are going to focus on our attention at Idaho State with our relationship with the lab is key to our future. Second, we are already beginning our first year of operation of the Polytechnic Institute here in Idaho Falls. This teaching model is specifically designed to meet the high-tech needs of this region, to enhance the student opportunity to graduate in high-tech engineering and cybersecurity fields. In fact, in my discussions with lab director, Mark Peters, I have placed an emphasis in my budget request to the state to have the state ask the state to help us fund joint appointed faculty. Faculty that are specifically funded for the purpose of working part-time at the university and part-time at the lab. So the research they're doing at the lab can benefit all of that economic development and what goes on in those much needed fields at the lab and then they can teach our students at the same time. And building a collaborative partnership between the university and the lab is one of the keys to our future. And it will be the key to those students' future, our students who are right here in Idaho Falls. Third, as part of this strategic plan, we're going to do a new physical master plan for our campuses, all of our campuses, including this campus that we are on right now, here at University Place in Idaho Falls. The future of connecting this campus to the community, connecting this campus to the lab right across the railroad tracks, and the Idaho State University Foundation owns property on the north side of the tracks. How do we connect those together and connect all of this so that we have a campus that is meeting the needs of this community physically to prepare for the growth that we need higher education to grow here in Idaho Falls? And fourth, and probably the most important of these four, is in discussions with College of Eastern Idaho President Rick Eamon, with the University of Idaho President Scott Green and I, we are in active conversations about future cooperation for the future of education here in Idaho Falls. And we have set a vision. And the vision is fairly simply stated. Think of it this way. What if we eliminated the words transfer and articulation from our vocabulary? What if instead of worrying about transferring credits between the three of us, about articulating credits and transferring students between CEI and ISU and U of I, what if instead we talked about working together to provide a student with one seamless path from their first day of college to their graduation, regardless of from which institution those credits originated? 
about outlining a degree path for every student that starts higher education in Idaho Falls, regardless of which of the three of us they started and from which, which of the three of us they graduate. But instead, what if the vision is we acted like one institution for the benefit of our students and helping them get an education? That is a vision for higher education in Idaho Falls. And I want to let you know that I'm committed to that vision. I'm not just talking about it. I'm committed to that vision. In short, there is room for real investment in the future of, Idaho, uh, of education here in Idaho Falls. And I want to assure you that Idaho State University, Idaho State University now understands that. And we're committed to that because that is the future. And finally, overall, not just here in Idaho Falls, but overall, our primary push, our primary emphasis on our campus over the next year is going to be the concept of student retention. At every one of our campuses, everywhere within Idaho State University, when a student comes to Idaho State, we need to retain them and help them finish. We have a ret retention issue at Idaho State. Students come, and for many reasons, they stop out, and they don't finish and that's not acceptable to me. We need to find out why those students aren't finishing, why they're stopping out, and put in place the right programs and support to make sure they can finish. We have to address that, and this is going to be a university-wide effort among all of our faculty and staff, all across all of our campuses, to understand and focus that our job, the only reason any one of us who works at the university has a job is to help those students complete their educational needs. That's why we exist, and helping them pursue our education is our number one job. Because that's why we are here. Because we've set a vision for that future. A future where higher education is critical to our continued growth, to our prosperity as a city, as a region, as a state. And in the spirit, of what the United States of America realized 157 years ago. 157 years ago, we realized that planning ahead, even during troubled times, but planning ahead for an educated citizenry means greater prosperity. It means economic growth. It means the maintain, it means how we maintain that self-governance that the Constitution envisions. And we maintain it through an educated citizenry. Because ultimately, in troubled or uncertain times, that may be when it is best, best for our hope for our future, to plan for those better times ahead. I want you all to know that Idaho State University will be moving forward for the benefit of all of our students and for this community. So thank you very much for having me here today, and I'll take whatever questions you have. Well, thank you very much, Mr. President. It's, um, it's a joy to finally have you here. I'm trying to escape the echo. and <clears throat> It's a joy to finally have you here so that we could host you and, and hear your vision for Idaho State University and I'm not sure where to stand. Uh, and this seems good, sorry. And also, uh, and also your, your plans for uh, your mission here in Idaho Falls. You mentioned at the, at the um, middle of your program 
the, the issue that Idaho State University faces, and it's a problem across the nation, and that is the retention of students. Mm -hmm. Of interest to you as president and your counterparts throughout Idaho uh, and elsewhere across the country. Uh, and you mentioned that there are several factors that might help to explain the departure of students. Would you expand on your remarks a little bit and, and share some of your, your thoughts and insights into the solution for that problem, please? Sure. So um, how we have started this effort is twofold. On our campus, we put together a task force um, called the Academic Success and Retention Task Force, okay. a group of um, experts from across our campus to look into our reasons on our campus why students aren't succeeding and what is it going to take to help them become successful? Why do they stop out? And so right now we're uh, reviewing that report to see what those reasons are and what we can put in place. So that's one step. The second step is a program called Complete College America. Many of you might have heard of it. The state of Idaho signed on to this program. It's a national program about how to make students complete college. And Idaho signed on to that and they have programs called Momentum Pathways programs, finding pathways that help students become successful. Now, one of the uh, issues, if you look nationwide, one of the biggest issues with student success and retention is college-level math. There is a direct correlation between students who fail or drop college-level math and whether they drop college altogether. Now, it's not, that's not to say math is the only problem. We have same, similar problems in English pathways and in some of our degree pathways. But the question is, what are we prepared to do about it? So we have Momentum Pathways teams right now looking at those pathways and how do we make those students successful. So we have a task force looking at the issues specific to our campus and um, these Momentum Pathways groups looking at these efforts that are coming in nationally to try to say what can we do to address that once a student comes in the door, what is the support we have to have to make them successful and complete their degree. So that's going to be a major effort of ours going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we have a variety of questions here. Okay. I know you'll enjoy these. Uh, you mentioned the importance of, of boosting STEM education. Uh, could you talk a little bit about ISU's plans to enhance STEM education? And then, by the way, uh, if you'll talk a little bit about your plans to boost education in such fields as social sciences mm -hmm. and the humanities of great interest to our audience. Sure. You know, and, and when I talk about STEM education, I'm a big fan of talking about STEAM instead of STEM. Uh, good, good, good. Well, if I, got, if I got applause, I should probably stop right there. Um, now, STEM education is critical. It's critical to business and industry, and it's critical to advancing our, the technology in our society. You know, when you, when you go back to, um, sorry, and I'm going to give a long-winded answer. You got me started. Um, when you look at the post-World War II uh, boom in higher education, and you look at what happened with that. Post-World War II, when uh, in World War II, the United States of America went to our nation and went to our people who joined the service and were drafted in the service, and we asked them uh, to go out and save the world. And they did, which is amazing and fantastic that the United States literally saved the world. One of the things that the United States did after that was we said to all of those soldiers and sailors, um, here's a GI Bill, use it to get an education at free or no cost, or free or low cost. 
And the number of students who went into higher education post-World War II because of the GI Bill, when the government, when states and the federal government said one of the most important and critical things we should do is invest in these students' education, it caused an economic and technology boom that, well, it was the greatest in history. And if you look at all the technologies that came out of university research labs because more students went into college, whether you want to call, whether you want to look at artificial limbs, modern water purification systems, modern air conditioning systems, whether you look at satellite communications and all the technologies that have come out of university research labs, it is clear that investing in technology-related research in higher education yields those types of results. So we have to, we have a duty, I think, as a nation. I mean, we used to set the standard that we set the standard for what higher education means, what university research means. We were the nation that was the undisputed leader in technology and science. And I want to make sure we stay part of that. And Idaho State University, as a Carnegie Research University, has a mission to stay on top of that. So we are going to invest in that. I have a task force working right now on uh, what are our research lab needs on campus? What do we have to do to make sure our research labs stay up to date? How do we make sure our students are going into those fields and that we continue that level of research? And we're looking at that right now. But at the same time, we can't forget what it means to be human. And what the arts and humanities do to us is help us remember what it means to be human in an ever digital world. And I think that we can't forget those. So we are investing in those programs as well. Thank you very much. Uh, in your eloquent remarks, uh, which provided a historical tour back to the creation of land-grant institutions, through your conclusion, uh, you remarked on the critical importance of higher education to the nation as a whole. A couple of, uh, of your audience members would like you to uh, expand a little bit on your concerns about the fact that the Idaho legislature uh, is not particularly generous anymore in funding higher education. Well, um, the first thing I would have to say, and it's just true, this isn't me being um, trying to curry anybody's political favor, is if you compare Idaho to many of our surrounding states in the percentage of our budget that's provided by the legislature versus the percentage of some of our public institutions and surrounding states, we're actually doing pretty well. Um, what, do I wish it were more? Yes. But it's hard to be critical of the legislature given all of the demands that they have for resources. They have limited resources and lots of demands, and those demands come from every sector of our society and from every part of our society, from local governments to states, the state requirements. So I'm not critical of them. I'll, but although I'm not critical, the reality is clear. If you go back in time 30 years, literally, 30 years from this year, the state of Idaho spent 15.5% of its general fund budget on higher education. 30 years ago, 15.5% of every state general fund dollar went to higher education. This year, this year, 7.5% of the general fund went to higher education. So over 30 years, slowly and little by little, just in small pieces, the state's support went from 15% of the state budget to 7.5% of the state budget. The next corollary question is pretty obvious. What happened to student fees at that exact same time period? 
they went up literally in the same proportion. If you take our state general account dollars right now, 7.5%, and you add our current student fee total in the entire Idaho system, and you add them together, do you know what number you get? You get 15.5% of the state's total budget. Higher education in Idaho right now survives on the exact same percentage of the state budget that it did 30 years ago. The difference is the students are paying for it now instead of the state. And what that means is that we haven't had an increase in investment. Yes, in actual dollars it's gone up, but if you look at percentage of the state's investment, it's gone down and the students have made up the difference. And that, the fact that students are paying so much of their education now is the primary reason students don't go on. That's why they don't go on to higher education. If we want to change that go on rate and have a more educated society, we have to deal with that problem. So am I critical of the legislature? Compared to other states, no, we're doing pretty well. But nationally, nationally there has been a disinvestment in higher education. And instead of doing what we did post-World War II as a nation and invest in that and see all of the economic boom that followed, um, for example, what does it mean? In the last couple of years, we've had great economic growth, right? People have been pretty excited the last couple of years. Our economic growth in the United States over the last couple of years has been somewhere between two and a half and three and a half percent. People are pretty excited. There's lots of opportunity, things are going well with that two and a half to three and a half percent growth. If you look at the 20 years post-World War II and you average over that 20 years, the average GDP growth for that 20 year period was 4% per year sustained for 20 years. Imagine what that would feel like. One of the driving factors of that was investing in all of those people going into higher education. And that's what that investment could yield for us. Uh, let's turn to a subject that has captured headlines here in Idaho and across the nation uh, and involved, of course, your former institution, Boise State University. As you well know, a number of legislators and other citizens were very critical of the way in which Boise State University allocated funds to promote diversity programs. That led to a wider conversation as to the role of higher education in uh, promoting diversity. I know that's an issue for every university president. Would you take a few minutes, couple of hours, and uh, share with us uh, your views about that controversy and uh, where you think it's going? Sure. Um, first of all, I would gladly meet with anybody, uh, whether a member of the legislature or otherwise, and talk about the value of diversity in our society, the value of inclusive decision-making. I truly believe that the best decisions at any level get made when you take a variety of viewpoints and you bring them to bear on a problem, that we don't solve problems with a singular viewpoint. We solve it with uh, various viewpoints. <clears throat> so I would gladly talk to anybody about that. Specifically with regard to diversity in higher education, I have a couple of examples that I think illustrate where I am on that. First of all, um, Idaho State University right now, I think with our fall enrollments this fall, we are less than 2% or we're right about 2%. So somewhere around 2% um, shy of being classified as an emerging Hispanic serving institution just based on our student population. That reflects the demographics of Idaho. That reflects who we are as a state. And those students are trying to better their lives through higher education at Idaho State University. So if someone tells me 
well, you better not have any programming to help Hispanic students, then my answer is, well, what do you want me to do with that large part of my student base? If you think I shouldn't have programming that is sensitive to the needs of Hispanic students when we are almost an emerging Hispanic-serving institution. I mean, I would ask anyone, which of your businesses out there are going to decide to ignore 20% of your customers? So that's my first point. Second point is, our job in higher education is to meet students where they are. They all come with individual needs. And one of the other things I do for a diverse population is I have a veterans center. Because veterans come to us as an identifiable, diverse segment of our society, and you bet we're going to be there to help them. Because I will meet those students where they are, and I will meet any of our students where they are, because why are they coming to us? They're coming to us to better their lives through higher education and become the people and the employees that you all want to hire someday and see working in our businesses, and we better be there to meet them. That's how I feel about it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Mr. President, a number of members of your audience are interested in the status and future of online education at ISU. Could you speak for a few moments about uh, the status of online education? Uh, how, much, how much of the education at uh, ISU, for example, might involve online education? And where do you see that going uh, at Idaho State University? So this is a great question because the answer is something that isn't intuitive. I think when we think about online education, we think about the student who they're maybe in Salmon or they're in Malad and they're at home and they're taking an online course. Most of our online courses at Idaho State University are taken by students who are on the campus at the time they take it. What they do is they'll take five classes for 15 credits and nine of their credits are live traditional classes and six are online education. Because what we have discovered is the online education and the real draw to it is the convenience of taking it at the time that meets the needs of the student. It's usually not a student who is remote completely. It's that they're on the campus and they're taking those classes. So what, what uh, online education is allowing us to do is make sure we can meet the programming at the time the student needs it, which helps them in their success rate. Now, at the same time, we do have many uh, programs that are 100% online, and you can take them anywhere in Idaho or anywhere in the world. And we have several um, entire degree programs you can get without ever setting foot on one of our campuses, and we're trying to be responsive to that. But what that requires is um, the faculty to, um, to teach in those types of programs because it is different. It's a little different style of education. So we're working on that. We're growing that, I think, at a at a relatively steady pace. I wouldn't say it's fast we're going into it, but what we're discovering is, is how the students want to use that online is different than I think what most of us think how they want to use it. So we're growing it and it's continuing to grow, um, but it's not, it's not the panacea that everyone thought five or 10 years ago that that was going to be how all education went. And that's not the case. Thank you. Uh, it's often said that the, that the role of university president uh, has changed dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. That presidents wear many different hats today uh, than their predecessors did. We have a couple of questions that, that probe the various roles, the granularity of presidential uh, responsibility. One question wondering about 
the condition and future of dormitories at Idaho State University. Uh, another wondering about uh, your roles and, and uh, your role as a fundraiser. Would you take a few minutes uh, to wax eloquent about the many hats that you wear and tell us a little bit about uh, whether you start at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and close shop at midnight? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll promise to take a few minutes to answer. I don't promise to wax eloquent about it. So take question number one, our housing. We call them now in higher education residence halls. Uh, all the rest of us lived in dorms, but our students now live in residence halls. Um, <laughs> Uh, the condition of our housing at Idaho State University is not what we need it to be. It's not what students want now, and it's not in good shape. I can talk about the reasons we got there, but that's not important. The, the issue is what are we going to do to address it? If we want to address the enrollment and recruitment and retention issues on campus, we have to say, what are we doing to provide an environment where students want to come and learn and stay? And if they don't have the right housing conditions, that's going to be a detriment to getting them there and a detriment to them staying. So we have to understand that. Students want to come to a place where they want to live, where they want to feel welcome, where they feel comfortable. And so um, we have to work on our housing. So um, just last month, yeah, it's last month, October, I took to the State Board of Education a plan to issue um, a, a revenue bond um, specifically, one of the parts of the revenue bond was to take $5 million from a revenue bond so that we can make immediate improvements to our student housing. So we're going to make an immediate $5 million investment to upgrade our existing housing to try to make it better. And then while we get that done, then we're going to undertake a long-term plan of what are our housing needs, how many students will want to live on campus if we have the right type of housing, and so that's going to be a major effort going forward, but it's going to start with an immediate $5 million construction project to upgrade our residence halls. Second question was about fundraising. I used to say, if I had to make a living asking people for money, I would not make a living. That's the problem. Um, but it is one of, the, one of the jobs of a university president. Some people call it the, the primary job of some university presidents is really to be fundraiser in chief. And so since I started, I have had to learn. Um, and luckily, we have some very good university advancement professionals on campus that I'm working with who know very well how to interact with patrons of the university. Here's how I see that role for me. It's difficult for me to ask somebody for money, but I understand that's my job. So when the time comes, I will make the ask um, of a patron or of a donor, hey, can you help us out? And here's what we need. And I've done that many times, in fact, I was in Salt Lake City yesterday specifically for the sole purpose of meeting with a couple of prospective donors, and I made the asks. But what really is my role when it comes to fundraising? My role is to talk about the future, to set the vision, to talk to our constituents to say, these are the good things that we're doing that you should be excited about, and hope that they agree with that mission, hope that they agree that we understand we're here to make our students' lives better, and we're trying to make this better experience so that they can better their lives through higher education. And if I can sell the vision, then hopefully our donors and our constituents will want to help out. They will see the value of that. That, um, for me, it's not about so much making the ask, which I will do. It's about setting up for the fact that our constituents are happy, that they like what they see about what we're doing. So setting that vision about what our institution is going to be about, where we want to go, 
and, uh, and what it feels like, that's, I think, my primary role. And would you also talk a little bit about your typical work day as you, as you discuss the various roles that you play, both on campus and off? Okay. So a typical work day for me um, starts early in the morning, and I meet with my, my central staff, and we usually have about a half-hour meeting about what is going to go on today and what are our goals out of our various meetings throughout the day. Um, I spend most of my day every day in meetings. Um, I don't spend a lot of time at my desk. Sometimes I wonder why I even have an office because I don't spend any time in it. I don't like to meet with people in my office. I like to meet with people in their office. I like to go where they are and see what's going on and how I can help them. But I spend most of my day in meetings and the meetings usually range from uh, meetings with my vice presidents or my deans, but usually somewhere on my calendar there's a meeting with somebody else in, in the organization, a department head or a department chair or a faculty member, so that I can see from the on-the-ground perspective what's going on, not just at the university leadership level. And then usually my lunches are um, consumed with meetings with constituents, businesses, and donors. That's what I usually do over the lunch hour. And I spend the afternoon in more meetings. And then when I go home at night, I go home every night with a stack of reading material to read for the next day. Um, one of the best pieces of advice I got, when I got named to this position, I went to um, a seminar put on by the American Association of State Colleges and Universities called the New Presidents Academy, specifically for new presidents of public universities, colleges and universities. And there were a couple of pieces of advice. One of them was, um, they said, remember when you're named a public university president, you didn't take a new job, you adopted a new lifestyle. Uh, because your whole life changes when you take a position like this. And, then, and they were very right. And the other one is, somebody asked one of the faculty at this seminar, do you ever like take a, um, a day where you don't go into the office, you work from home like half a day, do you ever do that? And one of the, one of the faculty said, yeah, that's called a Sunday. The job is, um, the job demands uh, a major commitment of time and energy, but to me it's really simple why we do that. So, you know, Dr. Adler, in your introduction you talked about my background. I'm a first generation college student. Neither of my parents went to college. I literally understand how a college education can set up the rest of your life the doors that it opens, what it can do for someone to change their life. I understand that. And I understand that every single one of our students that walks in the door deserves that opportunity to better their life. That is something that can keep me working long hours because that's a mission worth working for. Good. Here, here. Uh, you mentioned uh, in your remarks uh, about uh, what many would regard a significant accomplishment, your willingness and ability to work with faculty senate leaders who to, to carve out a new shared governance model. Mm -hmm. uh, the question of the sort of governance on a college campus has often led to many convulsions on many campuses for many years, ISU included. Uh, tell us a little bit about your philosophy of shared governance and, and what it's been like uh, to restore uh, some peace uh, and quiet on the ISU campus. Well, to me, shared governance is, is one of the key issues of what makes a university a very special place. The university hires all these 
uh, highly educated, super smart people in the faculty and listening to those people and their experiences to how we should move forward as an institution, I think is again back to better decision making. So for me, um, it's about taking advantage of that expertise and knowing that there are those diverse points of view into how we should make decisions. And it's understanding that I am so far from the expert on all of these topics. When it comes to what should we be teaching in um, uh, a fine arts program or in an engineering program, they are the experts. I shouldn't be making those decisions. They should be making those decisions. They're there. They're the ones who interact with our students. They understand their discipline, and that's where those decisions should be made, and that's shared governance. And then when I make the decisions that I am hired to make, I have to understand that it has an impact on all of those people, that all of those decisions have an impact. And so taking into account how it's going to impact people is important. And somewhere there's a balance, right? Because, um, you know, I'm the one that the State Board of Education will hold accountable for the future of the university and the decisions that are made. And so I know I have to answer for those, but I have to understand that those decisions have an impact on all of our people. And I think that's the key to true shared governance, governance at a university is when you respect all those really smart people and what they bring to the table. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple of questions uh, go to a pretty narrow issue, but yet a very important issue that affects the lives of many here in Idaho Falls and, and I think in surrounding areas. Uh, many, many students that once attended ISU did not finish, uh, but weren't those who dropped out after their freshman year or sophomore year, uh, but life intervened and they fell short by two or three classes uh, from earning their degree. Uh, what can ISU do at this point to facilitate the return of those students probably students now in their 30s or 40s or beyond who would like very much to earn a degree. What can I ask you to, to facilitate that? Well, I think that that's a great question because I think that's an effort we have yet to undertake. And I think there are ways to do that and other uh, universities have modeled how you do that. Now the question is, is given all the other issues we have to address is what, how does that fit in the priority of our use of time and resources? But setting up a program where we, again, you go back to the model of take students where they are. If they're out there and they have um, uh, 20 credits or 120 or 100 credits, we have to figure out where they are and what they would need to, for that path to degree and be able to welcome them back and realize they might have been gone too long for their catalog rights or those classes are out of date. But being empathetic as to where they are and how they got there and what we can do for them. But it is surprisingly, it is, that's, it's still a hurdle. You have to commit time and resources to that and get them back. You know, um, uh, the state of Idaho last year put money into the Opportunity Scholarship specific for um, uh, completers, I think is what they called it. Um, so it was for students and they put sideboards around who was eligible. And here was the eligibility criteria. I might get a couple of them wrong, but this is pretty close. The student had to have attended college, had at least 30 credits, had a GPA above a 2.0, and then left school and hasn't been back for two years. So that means they completed at least one full year of school, they were in good academic standing, they were getting good grades, but they're now gone, and they've been gone for at least two years. 
And if they met that criteria, the state provided scholarship to get those students back. So we ran a, um, a query in our data on campus over the last five years. And over the last five years, uh, if I got the number right, I'm pretty sure I got it about right. When we ran that data, uh, that query through our data, we had almost 2,000 students that met that criteria from Idaho State University. That means just in the last five years, 2,000 students who were, had at least a year of college, were in good academic standing, um, are gone and haven't come back. And we have to figure out why. So we have to have an effort at some point of how do we reach out and try to get them back. Right now, though, I'm trying to focus on why did they leave in the first place? Why are they not being successful? And let's try and fix that. And then at some point, we'll have to undertake an effort to get those students back. But the honest answer is right now, we're not undertaking that effort. Those are future Bengals that you're talking about, returning yeah. to campus. That's yeah. right. Uh, so on, uh, in line with curriculum or curricular changes, uh, what could you project for us over, the, say, the next 10 years that ISU might do to help create classes that would empower today's citizens to be better equipped to assume positions in the marketplace? Well, that's a good question. I wish I could answer that with any degree of certainty. The best, the best descriptor I have put on that um, comes from someone, and I don't know who to attribute this to because I don't know where it started, but I've, I've heard it a lot, especially over the last year, is one of the hardest things about being a faculty member in higher education right now is that we are training students for jobs that have yet to be created. That the, the pace of change in society right now is such that the students that we are educating right now will be taking jobs that didn't even exist at the time when they were in college. And that's hard. So what does that mean? What that means is you have to train students who are critical thinkers, who know how to solve problems, who know how to manage projects and work their way to the completion of a project requirement. Because th those skill sets of being critical thinkers, uh, making critical decisions, and being able to manage projects are key in any industry. It doesn't matter what field you go into. And so I think whenever we're setting up new programs, whatever they are going forward, we have to talk about are we setting those type of skill sets in the students about critical thinking, decision making, and project management. You've spoken uh, about issues involving ISU and the region, the state and the nation. Let's now think globally. Okay. A couple of excellent questions wonder, what is ISU doing uh, to prepare for climate change and global warming uh, beyond perhaps uh, equipping students with better knowledge? And secondly, is ISU engaged in programs to promote sustainability? Okay. First, um, our faculty are doing great work in this, and, and I appreciate the research that they're doing on the environment because they're the ones on the front lines of figuring out what is happening and how can we combat it. So I want to applaud all of our faculty who are working in those areas. Second, though, to this next one, as a campus, if I'm being honest with everyone in the room and everyone who's going to listen to this on the radio, we aren't doing enough about sustainability right now. We need to, and here's why. Um, well, first of all, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for our entire climate. But secondly, current students demand that. Current students are attuned to that, and it's what they want to see. 
if we want to talk about recruitment and retention of students, we need to show our students that's important to us because it's important to them. And if we don't show that it, it's important to us, they won't come or they won't stay. So from a selfish business reason, if you want to call it that, we need to address that and we need to get better at that. But right now there isn't a good sustainability program on the campus and that's something we have to work on. Thank you very much. President Satterley, uh, you've talked about the importance of education and of course everybody in this room and many of your listeners are devoted readers. Uh, one audience member praises you for, uh, for opening up the vast collection at the Obler Library so that uh, more people can participate in the usage of those great materials. What can be done to ensure enhanced accessibility uh, for, for people in the region? That's a, that's a really good question. And unfortunately, there's a really good answer. Not good in that maybe an answer nobody wants, but there's a real direct answer. And that is the budget for the library has been systematically cut over the last eight years um, at Idaho State University. And that makes it difficult for the library to continue to have those collections and offer those collections and get them out there. So we have to work on that from a true budgetary standpoint to get the resources that we need to make that knowledge available. Um, so, I mean, that is literally the answer of how we do, do we make those materials more uh, available and accessible. Because lately, over the last several years, what our library has done is figure out how to cut the availability of collections to meet their budget requirements. And that's really difficult. And that's something we have to try to turn in the right direction. Um, budget cuts over the last several years on our campus have become commonplace. And they've become that because of the state appropriation on one hand, but also our decline in students. As we decline in students, where students are paying half of the revenue that comes into the university impacts the budget. So understanding that we have to fix those enrollment and retention issues in order to get the budgets we need to actually grow, grow our way out of our current situation, will impact the library, will impact the availability of programming and collections and things like that. So it may not be the answer everybody wanted, but that is the real practical answer how we improve that. Our time together is nearly at an end. Uh, we appreciate very much the opportunity that we've had to get to know you better. And we finish with a question uh, from an audience member who wonders, as busy as you are, do you ever have any time to relax, say, over a good book, a biography, a book on politics, a movie, or, or, have, uh, or must that form of relaxation await your retirement in 40 years? <laughs> No, I actually uh, read a lot. I read the stuff I bring home every night, but I read a lot um, uh, to keep my mind occupied on things. And I read a lot of history. I read a lot of biographies. Um, and I spend a lot of time uh, with my kids. And we spend time together. Um, and that's one of my favorite forms of recreation. And we, we like movie night. Um, but uh, most of the time I spend when it's that type of thing, I'm either reading or spending it with my kids. Turn next time, and we hope it's very soon, we're going to ask you about your favorite books. Uh, in the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, let's give President Satterley a warm City Club thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Information about upcoming Idaho Falls City Club forums can be found at ifcityclub.com. Audio of this and all past City Club forums can also be found at ifcityclub.com. Click on Events and archives. This is KISU Pocatello, Idaho Falls, Rexburg. Coming up next is Matt's Movie Tracks.